1968, there was a woman who moved from Germany to America and took the name Anna Anderson. She first surfaced over four decades earlier in a Berlin mental asylum uh, as Madame Unknown, or what we would refer to as Jane Doe. However, soon after, she claimed to be Anastasia Romanov, the Grand Duchess of the Russian royal family that had been executed by the Bolsheviks four years earlier, but whose bodies had never been found. Anna looked a lot like the princess, and she even knew many of the personal details about her life. And even though most of the surviving Romanovs dismissed her as a fraud, she did win the support of several Russian immigrants uh, who believed that she was the rightful heir to the throne. And Anna's story inspired several books, inspired several holiday movies, and it also inspired the 1997 animated Disney film, Anastasia. Anna was never legally recognized as the true Anastasia due to a lack of evidence. But her story remained the source of much debate until 1994, 10 years after her death, when a posthumous DNA test finally proved that she was not, in fact, related to the royal family. Anna was actually just a Polish factory worker named Franziska Szkanskowska, who disappeared in 1920. And in 2007, the body of the real Anastasia Romanov was discovered in Russia. And history is filled with these examples of imposters who took on royal identities. And in the days before DNA testing, it wasn't always so easy to distinguish a king from a con artist. So this is why Matthew begins his gospel with an official list of names, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew begins his book this way because he's a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew who claimed to be king of the Jews. And if someone shows up claiming to be king, they better have proof. You know, questions need to be asked such as, you know, what is your background? Do you descend from royalty? Do you have a legal claim to the throne? These are the kinds of questions that people would ask. You know, they would want to see certain credentials. And that's exactly what Matthew provides in his book. He gives a careful account of Jesus' birth to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is truly God and truly man and is truly qualified to reign as king. But did anyone acknowledge this at Jesus' birth? Did anyone recognize his royal credentials? Did anyone pay homage to him as king? Absolutely. Beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that's going to be our text for today. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 757. And in this section, Matthew chapter 2, we are told... Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the, chiefs, or all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
And so right here in this section, there's actually a time gap of close to two years between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So by this time, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, as we see in verse 11, are actually living in a house. We also see in this chapter uh, later on that Herod sends soldiers to Bethlehem to murder all of the boys under the age of two because he knew that Christ was a, a, a very real threat to his throne. And so he figures that the Messiah is younger than two, however older than, than just an infant. And Luke 2, uh, if you were to turn there, records a lot of uh, events that fill part of this time uh, that, are, that are missed in Matthew's gospel, such as you know, Jesus' circumcision, uh, his presentation at the temple by Joseph and Mary, uh, their interaction with Simon and Anna. And these accounts are nonetheless very significant. However, they don't serve Matthew's main purpose, which is to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the kingship of Jesus. So after listing Jesus' royal ancestry and describing the account of his birth, which fulfilled messianic prophecy, Matthew immediately goes on to tell us about the wise men who recognized Jesus for who he was and worshipped him accordingly. And right off the bat in verse 1, we see the word behold. Matthew says behold because he wants to make sure that he has our attention right here. He means for us to be surprised by what takes place. Now, after all, this isn't who Mary and Joseph are expecting to see to come and visit them. The ESV says that these are wise men. However, there's other translations, and, and uh, these men are actually also referred to as magi. And magi is an ancient word that referred to pagan astrologers. You know, it's actually where we get our English word, magic. And so while the song, We Three Kings, is a good Christmas carol to sing, these guys are not actually kings, nor are they even political leaders. What they are are pagan specialists in the supernatural, similar to what we might refer to as sorcerers or wizards. And these dudes are coming to worship Jesus. I think this is a very important reminder for us that we should beware of having a narrower vision of who can come to Jesus than God does. We may be prone to write off people such as these men, but praise the Lord that God isn't. He draws worshipers out for himself from the most unexpected of places. And one of the reasons that the Magi are so unexpected is in large part because in the Old Testament, it so clearly condemns their craft. In Exodus, Moses is met by court magicians numerous times, and he later condemns the use of such magic in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah add to their words of judgment by including those who dabble in magic, in sorcery. And magi were the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans that the pagan king of Babylon commanded to to interpret his dream in Daniel chapter 2. And even in the New Testament, we turn into the New Testament, we see that this practice is condemned also. In Acts 8, Peter rebukes Simon, a man who had been trafficking in magic and essentially tried to purchase the Holy Spirit from the apostles. And at the end of Revelation in John's vision, we see that John twice lists sorcerers as among those who would be cast into the lake of fire. And so what we see is that the whole Bible, you know, Old Testament as well as New Testament, plainly condemns the kind of astrology and dark arts that were typical of the Magi. David Mathis says that in biblical terms, the Magi are plainly marked as sinners. 
And so we three kings of Orient are not kings, but they do come to worship Jesus, the true king. Matthew 2 verse 11 says, And going into the house, they, that is, the Magi, saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now at this point, a lot of people will speculate as to the symbolism of the gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. They might say that the gold represents Jesus as simply our long-awaited king. Frankincense is uh, symbolic of Jesus as our priest, and myrrh as our sacrifice. However, perhaps the main connection that Matthew would have us make by pairing the gold and frankincense is actually to Isaiah chapter 60, where Isaiah prophesies about all of the nations coming to Israel's king, saying uh, in verses 3 through 6, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This Christ is not only the king of Israel. He is the king of all nations. He is the king of kings. And kings in their own right will come to bow at the feet of this king, and they will bring their treasures as freewill offerings in worship, their wealth, their best cultural products and practices, of which gold and frankincense are just the beginning. And Revelation 21 picks up on Isaiah chapter 60 and actually recasts this prophetic vision of the future with Christ at the center of it all. And in Revelation 21 verses 22 through 26 we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The nations will bring their best. Gentile kings will gladly bow to the Jewish king of all kings. And not only will the glory of God light the whole kingdom, but the single lamp that lights up all will be the lamb, the lamb of God that was slain for us. When the Magi came to Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Little did they know that they were asking for him by the very title that would later be written above his head as he hung on the cross, dying for the sins that were not his own. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, in Matthew 27. And this true King of the Jews is not a usurping king like Herod, abusing his power, acting impulsively, and using deceit to further his reign. Rather, this king of the Jews is the one true king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
He is the ruler who does not merely demand our homage, but wins it with his shocking self-giving of himself on our behalf, all the way to death, even death on a cross. He is the king who demonstrates his love for his people in that while we were still sinners, engaged in our own wicked ways, engaged in what would be our own equivalents of sorcery and wizardry, Christ died for us, as Romans 5, 8 tells us. And this side of the cross, we know more than those magi knew. Not only would this God graciously draw Gentile sinners to himself and permit them to come near to his son, but he would provide eternal salvation for sinners like them and for sinners like us as well through the willing death of that very child that they had come to honor. That is a king worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Lord, we recognize that at one time we were separated from Christ, alienated from your people, and strangers to your covenants, having no hope and without you in the world. But now, Father, we know because of your Son, we who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father, as we think about Christmas, help us to remember that it's about your grace, not our deservedness. We thank you for who you are, and we ask, Father, that you would be with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.